seated. Thanks for being here today with us. I wanted to join my welcome to Doug's and say thanks for coming today. Thanks for visiting with us. If you are new to Redeeming Grace Church, hopefully you got a little brochure as you came in the door. You can fill that out, exchange that back by those wall of books. We call that our resource center because they are resources for how to live out the Christian life. Exchange that for a free book and we would love to bless you with that. And we are almost done our series in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. This is the end of chapter 15. This is the longest treatise in the Bible on the resurrection. And so we get to see some wonderful truths about the resurrection today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Be reading verses 50 to 58. This is God's holy inspired word that's meant to affect us today, that's meant to penetrate our hearts today, that's meant to change how we live today. So listen with that in mind. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we come to you not because there's any hesitancy on your part, but Lord, because we often are feeling like we're distant from you. We feel our need for you. We feel our brokenness. We feel our perishability. We feel our mortality. But God, thank you that you, you are the one who makes all things new. You are the one who gives us new life in you. And so, Father, we come to you knowing that you will give us mercy and grace today. So we ask you for your mercy and grace. Would you, would you enliven our dull minds? Would you open up our hardened hearts? Would you enable us to hear from you, Lord, where we're deaf? Would you give us your joy this morning in the resurrection? Lord, would you give us your hope? Would you fill us with your spirit Lord, would you fill me to preach your word, to do what I'm not able to do on my own? Would you fill each and every one of us to hear from you what we can't do on our own? Would you give us your spirit? And thank you, Lord, that you are, are willing to do that. You promised to do that. So, Lord, we, we ask this in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, in 1933, eight years after 
he published a book called Mein Kampf that laid out an evil, ultra-radical, racist plan for Aryan world rule. Adolf Hitler was then elected to be the Chancellor of Germany. His agenda wasn't veiled, but, but Europe didn't seem to take him very seriously. The same year, they opened two concentration camps in Germany, and Hitler was given dictatorial powers over Germany, and then Germany quit the League of Nations, and still, Europe tried to pacify him. A year later, the Nazis, they murdered Austrian Chancellor Dolphus, and Hitler became Fuhrer of Germany, and yet still, it, it wasn't seen as a threat Hitler revealed his war plans for Europe in 1937. Things progressed. The Nazi military mobilized in 1938. The same year, though, British Prime Minister Chamberlain appeased Hitler in Munich. Six months later, Hitler took over Czechoslovakia, signed a, a steel pact with Italy, Mussolini, Italy's Mussolini, and shortly after that, the Nazis, they just walked into Poland. Finally, in 1939, after all of that transpired, Britain, France, Australia, New Zealand, they all declared war on Germany, and yet the United States still sat passively by. Even after Denmark, Norway, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Holland were all invaded, a total of nine countries, the U.S. still remained on the sidelines. Why? Because they sensed no need for their own victory over the Nazis. They didn't see them as a threat. After the blockade of Britain, night, night air raids in the country, no action was taken. Even after Germany and Italy and Japan signed an act, a pact of agreement and entered into Romania and Greece and Yugoslavia, and they all surrendered when Iraq and Syria and Ukraine were also invaded, the U.S. still didn't think that there was any great threat to our country and still sat on the sidelines. We didn't see a need for victory because we didn't feel the imminent threat. It wasn't until December 7th, 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, when the U.S. then experienced the sting of war and realized there was a need, a need for victory, a need to overcome, and they entered into the war. But it took seven years, really, or... Five years after, six years or so afterwards of a, of a huge buildup of the Nazi powers for the U.S. to enter. Because the U.S. really didn't see the threat of the Nazis. Now with history's hindsight, we can look back and see that. And we, but, but the reality is, is that we can often approach the threat of sin... That way, we can, we can see there's no real threat to us. Death is no real threat to us. So when we come upon passages like this, we can think it's, it's really underwhelming. You can become very familiar with the idea that, that sin is the stinger of death and that death comes for all of us. And so then you don't see your own personal need for victory. You don't see your need for victory over sin and over death. But it's much more sure than any Nazi occupation of Germany was, I mean, of, of Europe was sure in 1941. But sometimes we don't take God's law seriously. We don't see that his law convicts us of sin, that his law is, is, the, is what shows us our need for him and that we're guilty before a holy and righteous judge. Sometimes we toy with sin. At least I know I do. We're complacent as if it's a minor inconvenience, as if it's no real threat 
as if it doesn't require victory. Some don't believe that death will really come from them. I lived like that when I was younger, and I, I bear the effects of that, that kind of living on my body, and yet the reality is, is that the sting of death will come for each and every person here. All will be held guilty before God because of our sins. All who have not placed their faith in Christ will spend eternity in torment and wrath. And yet sometimes we're not awed by the idea of victory over death. We come to passages like this and we say, okay, oh, oh, death, where's your victory? And then we see the victory we have in Christ, but then we, we, we downplay it. But often what we can do is we can turn to lesser things. We can turn to other places as if, as if victory in those areas are more important. We want victory like in work or academics or in sports or the arts, thinking those things are more pressing when not realizing that we have a pressing enemy that we need victory over and that we've received victory over. And if we experience that, if we really grasp that, it's going to affect how we live. Yet often we don't live differently because we don't understand our need for victory or the victory that's come. And what's the first thing we need to see when we come to passages like this is that we need to see that we, we need to be changed. Paul here, he's emphasizing that to the church in Corinth, that we need to be changed. We need change. Look in, in verse 50. It says, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot, in our current state apart from Christ, we can't inherit the kingdom of God. Why is that important? Because the kingdom of God is the only thing that's lasting. And yet flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. This earthly weak body, we can't inherit the kingdom of God on our own. Our flesh, our blood, it's been corrupted. It's imperfect, it's unfit for living in God's perfect kingdom. Because we're perishable, we can't enter into God's eternal kingdom. We can't go into the holy place with God. We can't be with God forever. Because sin has corrupted us to the very core of our bodies. Our bodies are decaying and we... The older we get, you know that. And our decaying bodies are at odds with this undecaying kingdom of God. And not only does Paul tell us that, he says the mortal can't inherit the kingdom of God, the flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, but, but the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. We need to be changed. We're, we are perishable. Deep down, I think most of us have some understanding of that. At least once you get past your 40s, you begin to have more of an understanding that, that we're perishable. And we can either admit that or we can look outside of ourselves for hope. We, 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 can, we, can, we can admit that and look outside of ourselves for hope or we can look to other places for hope. And, and we try to do this all the time. Subtly, we, we try to do this all the time. We try to inherit the imperishable. That's why people who deny the existence of God, unbelievers, they, they put their hope in medicine or in cures or in holistic solutions or natural things to overcome our perishability. And those things can be good, but those things can become idols. You know, food can become an idol for us where we, where we look to use food or natural means to overcome our perishability, thinking that if we just eat clean, we eat right, we eat good, then, then maybe we'll prolong this life. And while it's good to eat good food and be aware of what we put into our bodies so we can be more fruitful for the kingdom, it can become an idol for us. 
And we can have this religion of, of eating foods. And, and foods can become this, this thing we worship as if eating non-GMO, organic, gluten-free, dairy-free, carb-free, cruelty-free, animal-free, whatever your, whatever your specific desires to eat are. We, those things can become a religion for us. And, and then, and like any religion, when we disobey those food laws, we then can feel guilt or condemnation. And what that's revealing is that we're putting our hope in those things for becoming imperishable. And, and we need to be changed at a deeper change, a better change than that. We can also try to overcome our, our perishability by, by exercise, by whether it's yoga or clean living, healthy habits, but ultimately here's the reality, we are still perishable. Now, maybe eating good and, and exercise, it's good for you. It can make you more fruitful for the kingdom of God, but if you look to any other source, what you're doing is saying that you're hoping in those means to become imperishable. But we need to be aware that we are perishable and we need victory. We have this enemy, perishability, mortality, caused by the sting of sin and now brought on by the the death that will come for all of us. We have this coming for each and every one of us. And so verse 53, Paul reminds us, he says, for this perishable body must, it's not, a, it's not an option for some. It must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. We must be changed. Because we have an enemy, we have a threat Death will come, and apart for any external solution, an solution external to us, this sting of sin, it causes death for each and every one of us, and we will finally face the wrath and condemnation of God apart from some remedy outside of ourselves. Apart from some intervention, death wins. But as Christians, we believe that death does not win. Death does not win. It doesn't have the final verdict but how we, we, we can believe that because we believe something that scripture tells us we believe that we're going to be changed because of the victory of Jesus Christ we're going to be changed because of the victory of Jesus Christ and you might ask well how can that be because he says that that Jesus is actually his victory is going to give us an imperishable body his his victory is going to give us an imperishable body just like his he's going to give us his immortal life just like his own but we're as hopeless to do that on our own as the little nation of Monaco was hopeless when Germany just walked in and they could offer no real resistance. So how can we overcome death and sin, things that we're, we're powerless on our own to overcome? How, how do we do that? The reality is that, that death has a very fearsome stinger. Paul writes and he says that the, the sting of death is sin. He, you might think that's a weird way of writing. It could have said the sting of sin is death. But no, the, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is the fact that knowing that we will pay for our sins if we are not changed, if we're not redeemed, if we're not forgiven of all of our sins. Death has a very real fearsome stinger that is an enemy. When, when we first moved here to South Carolina, I, I remember we went into our front yard and it was... Um, around September or so, about a month or so afterwards, and we were watching this really pretty little red ant. It was all velvety and soft. It was about a half inch long. 
It's a, it's a beautiful little ant. It, it, it looks really neat. And we're like, wow, that's really cool. And my kids were wanting to pick it up and touch it. I was like, yeah, it's red. You know, red things in nature are a bad idea. And so we didn't touch it. And then I was like, well, let's look this up. And so went and Googled it and found out that this is the red velvet ant. And so you think, oh, that's red velvet, like red velvet chocolate cake or something nice and palatable. And then you also see that it's, also, it's called the cow killer. And it's called that because it has a brutal sting. It's so painful that it feels like it could kill a cow. And it's described that how it works, it's venom, it enters the bloodstream, then peptides and enzymes in the venom, they break down the cell membranes, spilling cellular content in the bloodstream, happens to nerve cells, they're connected to the central nervous system, this breach causes the injured cell to send pain signals back to the brain, that, and those signals last for at least 30 minutes for most people of excruciating pain. And for some people, it lasts for days. So now we know that that's an enemy for us and we don't touch it because we know it has a sting. But we face a more fearsome enemy. Paul says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And the problem is for all those who sin, that the death's wage is paid out as punishment eternally, whether you want it or not, unless there is some external victory given to you. Sin will run rampant over you. Death will ultimately win. Sin will sting ultimately unless there is some external victory. But where the law is kept, where sin is pardoned, there's no penalty and death has no sting because the sting of sin can be removed. But this sting of sin, I, I like the way that David Garland explains it. He says, the sting enables death to exercise dominion over the entire world, but its venom has been absorbed by Christ and drained of its potency so that the victory over death now belongs to God and to God's people who benefit from it. Sin's the instrument of death and sin stings us because sin poisons us, it corrupts us. It, and the power of, of sin is the law. The law reveals our inability to keep it. The law reinforces sin. It, it, it shows us that we are powerless to say no to the law, on, I mean to, to obey the law on our own to say no to sin. But we can, we can try to deal with that. We can try to deal with this problem by either denying the law, embracing just free, free living in, in every area, but the reality is that sting is coming for us no matter what. Or we can try to live in such a way where we try to keep the law on our own. We say, you know what, we're going to keep the law on our own, we're going to be good enough before God, and then yet the sting still comes because there's no way we can ever be good enough on our own. There's no way we can keep God's law on our own. Either way, a change is needed. And there's a wonderful mystery that Paul tells us about. Look back in verse 51. He says, behold, he's really excited about this because he means for not only the Corinthians, but for all of his readers to be really excited about this. Behold, there is a great mystery, something that was once hidden before that's now been revealed that is marvelous. It's meant to have that effect on us too. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And he says this truth. Here's the reality for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, we shall we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's hope. We will be changed because of the victory of Jesus Christ. And here's how. 
Because, because Jesus has taken that sting. You know, if, um, if a honeybee stings, its stinger remains in the person that it stings and it can't sting anymore. And so Jesus has, has taken the sting of sin. He's taken on all of our sins. There's, there's no way that although we all will die, some of us will, will sleep, as use Paul's euphemism, it doesn't mean soul sleep, it means that the body is as if it's sleeping because he knows that one day Christ will reawaken our bodies. As soon as we die, we are, we are immediately present with Christ, but our bodies remain asleep. And he says, we're not all gonna sleep, but we all will be changed. We all will be changed because Jesus has taken that stinger for all who place their hope in him. He has removed the sting of sin. He's removed the power of death so that, that one day all will be resurrected in him. And that's meant to affect how we live. And he tells us when. He tells us how. He says, in a moment, in a, in a twinkling of an eye. And that, that word for, for moment, by the way, it's, it, it's the same word that's used for Adam in our language. It's, it's in, in a split Second, in, in, in the smallest measure of time, we're going to be changed. This isn't something that's going to happen over the eons. It's not something that we're going to evolve into. But no, God's transforming power immediately will make us new. And he says, for the trumpet will sound. These, these aren't things that we have to wonder, will they happen? No, the history's already been written. He says, we will be changed in, in a moment, in a in in the smallest measure of time, we'll be changed. Faster than you can, you can blink, we're going to be changed. And he says this trumpet will sound. This, now what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that, that in, in, times, in, in the Roman times, they would, um, they would first have a trumpet that would call people together. They would call, second trumpet would call people to muster. And then this last trumpet would, would call them to march out, to march away. And he's given that kind of, that kind of, Illustration here, he says that that last trumpet, you've heard the trumpet of, of God calling you to himself and, and gathering you, but and the last trumpet, he's gonna call us to march out, to go to be with Jesus, and when he does that, we'll all be changed in an instant, and he says the dead will be raised imperishable, and we'll all be changed. Whether you die and your spirit goes to be with him, or whether we are still around when Christ returns or not, instantaneously, all of us at once will be immediately changed, reunited with our bodies, with a supernatural body, a body that's incomparably greater that we learned about last week, that's like you know the, the comparison of an acorn to an oak tree will be reunited and it'll take place instantaneously in just a moment when that last trumpet sounds. Now, as an aside for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and I assume there are some here who may not have done that. The reality is, is that that moment comes like a twinkling of an eye. And you might be thinking, I have plenty of time. I can, I can live for myself. I can live as if death's not really coming. I can live as if Christ is not really coming. I can live how I want, but we don't know when that'll occur. So I'd encourage you, you have an enemy. You have an enemy you will face if you do not know Jesus. You will feel the sting of your sin. If, if you don't place your faith in Christ, you will stand before a holy and righteous judge who will, you will give an account for all of your sins and be punished eternally. But here is the wonderful thing. If you place your faith in Christ, he says that in a moment, we'll be changed. We can get an idea of what he meant from 1 Thessalonians. He wrote something very similar. 
He said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, he's not talking about going to sleep, taking a nap. He's talking about their bodies being dead. He says that you might not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord is sure that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If you don't see your need to change, you won't be encouraged by that. But if you see your need to change, and then you see the fact that, that we will be changed because of the victory of Jesus Christ, that he's already won, by the way, when he was on the cross and he died for paying for all of our sins, he said, it's finished. The battle is won, it's been conquered. Sin's power has already been broken over us. Sin has already been paid for. He's already won the victory, it's already finished. And then once he calls us home at that final trumpet, we will fully receive all of the effects of that. He says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And I, I love the way he, he, he phrases that death is swallowed up. It's like death is drunk down. Death is, is done away with, is devoured. It's eaten, it's consumed. Death is no longer. Death is swallowed up in the victory of Christ. It's like he swallows it down and it's no more. He, he's eaten death, the ultimate death eater. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 25, 8, when he says, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Death will be ultimately obliterated. Done away with and in every way. He says then, O death, where is your victory? He mockingly asks, oh, death, where's your sting? If, if there's no longer any punishment for sin that remains, there's no sting of death any longer either. And so what he's saying is that we now have, because of the victory of Jesus over sin, no sting remains for any who are in him. That's meant to be good news. You know why? Because we, although we continue to sin, we can be sure as believers in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, that, that although you continue to sin, that Sin will not sting you. You will not pay for that sin because it's already been paid for in the victory of Christ. You will not bear the wrath of God anymore because that wrath has been born. The sting has been removed. And that's why he, he breaks out into praise. This is the way that we're meant to respond to. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's important to note that this is not a victory that we earn. This is not a victory that we keep. This is not a victory that we have to confess or profess or somehow secure on our own. No, he says it's God who gives us the victory, not because of our merit, not because of our ability, not because of our confession even. He says he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
because he's perfectly satisfied the law and all of its claims. He's, he's taken the curse. He, the imperishable one took on perishability. The immortal one took on mortality. The sinless one took on sin so that we can experience immortality and imperishability and sinlessness completely. On the cross, he was victorious and he kept the law of God even till his final breath. He won the victory over death. He was victorious. He, he bore the full weight of our shame and guilt and God's wrath. So instead of sin reigning, his grace now reigns victoriously. Romans 5 explains it for us this way. It says in, in verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. See, law is the power of sin. But where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you believe that? Are you placing your faith in the fact that, that through the victory of Christ, we, we have been changed and we will be changed? Does it affect how you think, how you approach life, how you approach your own failings and weaknesses and sins? You see, we don't, we don't ignore and act like sin doesn't exist. No, we fight it, knowing that he's already won the victory. It's already powerless over us. We have a victory that's been secured and it can't be taken away. So Paul, he erupts in praise saying, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not only do we need to be changed, we can be sure we're gonna be changed because of the victory of Jesus, but we can live changed lives now. That's what he's saying in verse 58. We can, we can live changed lives now because Christ's victory has already been given to us. We can live changed lives now because we've, we've received a down payment really on the victory that's been given to us. When, when Europe was finally liberated from the Nazis' cruel rule, it, it changed everything for them. VE Day was a day of great celebration because they were celebrating the fact that, that victory had been won. Although not all the battles had been played out yet, victory had been won and they lived differently. They lived with hope where beforehand they weren't sure. But after VE Day, all the battles remained. They lived with hope. They lived differently. It changed their outlook. It changed their willingness to fight. It changed what they did. It changed everything. You see, the knowledge of our victory that God has given to us through Jesus, it's meant to change how we live now, not just in the future, not just one day we're going to receive new bodies. No, it's meant to change how we live now. It's meant for us to live in the light of the fact that we really have been given a freedom. The, the battles aren't all done. The war's been won. Christ has already claimed the victory. And now we can actually labor is what Paul tells us. Toil, work hard, knowing the victory's already won. We can live in the good of that freedom that we already have. And the question for you, Christian, is are you living in the good of that freedom right now? Or are you living as if you are still a slave to sin? He says that we have already been given victory, and that victory is meant to change the way we live. 
But we shouldn't live as if we're still slaves of sin. We shouldn't live as if we're still slaves of sin by, by submitting to sin as if we need to obey sin still as if sin is still our master. No, we don't have to live that way. We don't have to give up and just become resigned in how we live. No, we can live as if there really is hope. And so now we're going to live differently. We're going to live in light of that hope. We don't have to stop working because we feel like there's no point. He says, no, there is a point. And so now we can labor. And whatever he's called you to do, whether, whether you are a school teacher or a homemaker, whether you are a business person, whatever you find your role, we can work always abounding in the work of the Lord, being steadfast, being steady, holding fast. That's how we hold fast, that command that he, he gave a few verses earlier in his letter to the Corinthians. We can hold fast, we can be steadfast. How? If we hang on to these truths, that he already has a victory for us. And then we're gonna participate in that victory, not only now, but fully in the future, and it's already secure, and God has spoken so we can be steadfast. We can hold steady. We can hold fast. He says we can be immovable. Don't be moved by the trials and difficulties of life. Don't live as if this pain that we endure in this life will always last. He said, no, I want you to live like this is momentary. That's how he can say in another place that this light and momentary affliction, it doesn't mean that, that affliction is light, but it's in, in light of eternity, we can live as if, you know what, this is, this is something I'm gonna be able to do because I know this will not last. Whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever trials, we have a victory that's secure, it's already been given to us, that is kept for us. And if we keep that in mind, we can always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor, our toil, our hard work is not in vain. We can participate in his victory over sin as we, as we claim his power to say no to sin and receive his grace. We can participate in his victory every day as we place our hope in him for each new day. That's what we're supposed to do with this verse. We can participate in his victory as we, we live in the good of what he's done for us, trusting in his victory, saying no to condemnation. You know, condemnation is a lie of the devil for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we, we live, we receive his victory, we can live condemnation free by saying no to condemnation, saying no to shame, no to guilt. Remembering that we are free before God, not to live as we want, but free to live for him now. We participate in his victory when we claim our inheritance in him. Saying, I know that I'm gonna receive an inheritance. And that Knowledge is meant to give us hope in that inheritance instead of looking for things here to give us hope. Whether that's a perfect body or a perfect career, money, power, fame, whatever those things are. You can claim the victory of Christ by, by not living as if those things, those perishable things are what will give us hope and satisfaction. Our hope's assured and we, we have something to look forward to and we can celebrate If you're constantly remembering this, he says, therefore, constantly remembering, being aware of this truth, he says, therefore, don't be moved by circumstances. Don't be moved by difficulties, pain or struggles or trials. He says, know this, what, the work that you do, that you can always abound in if you keep this perspective, it is not in vain. 
you, you might not feel like you're going to be paid, but he says there's an inheritance that you're going to receive, and that payment is already guaranteed because Christ has earned it. It's not something you need to, to earn. No person, no difficulty, no trial, no circumstance, nothing can ever separate you. I want to read you the last half of that verse that I mentioned at the beginning in Romans 8. Romans 8, 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now here's how this verse ends. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he answers this question. He says, no, in all these things. And it may be scary to you because he doesn't say that those things won't occur. He says, no, in all of these things. This life will be filled with all of those things. He says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors, not through our own ability to keep ourselves, but he says, through him who loved us. He says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, we can always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Nothing will separate us from him. And the Christian life is an abundant one, and our labors, even to the point of weariness, are not in vain because we have the victory of Christ secured for us and that he's ultimately going to give to us. Let's pray. Get the band come up. Father, I pray that your truth would penetrate our hearts and our minds. God, will we see that sin and death are truly an enemy that we need victory over, but we also see that not to which we need to be changed from perishable, Lord, we, we receive that change from you through your victory and that that victory is secure for us. And would you enable us to live in response to that today? Would you give us joy in the midst of those all things that you mentioned in Romans. Lord, would you, would you give us joy in the midst of tribulation, distress, and trials, and difficulty, knowing that those things do not affect us, those things do not separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Those things will not hinder your ultimate victory. And Lord, will we live in faith-filled Lord, with a faith-filled perspective. Would you give us faith today, Lord? All those who have allowed those things to cloud their vision as if those things will overcome them, would you give us faith to see that, that, Lord, no, you already have the victory and ultimately you'll give us even new bodies. Would you enable us to have faith in you? Would you give us joy in you? In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Let's stand and sing.